Welcome to this ninth session on Catholic apologetics. I'm Chris Noble, and it's been good to be with you so far, and welcome to this ninth session um, on the infallibility and primacy of the Pope. We're going to talk about the Pope and who he is and the foundation for his office. I'd like to start out by talking about who was Peter. Peter was the first Pope, and what kind of evidence do we have of who he was and how he was treated by, treated by Christ? In Scripture, first we'll start out with Scripture. In Scripture, Peter had a special predominance among the apostles. When they were named, Peter almost always headed the list. You can take a look in Mark 3, Matthew 10, Luke 6, Acts 1. Peter's name headed the list of the apostles. He usually spoke for the apostles. He usually spoke for them. You can take a look, for example, on Matthew 18, Mark 8, Luke 12, or John 6. He was the spokesman. He worked the first healing of the Christians in Acts 3. To Peter came the revelation that the Gentiles were to be baptized in Acts 10. He was the first in faith, the first one who said that Christ was a living God in Matthew 16:16, 16, 16, in answer to Christ's question, Who do you say that I am? On another occasion, and this is a significant scripture here, on another occasion in John 6, because the teaching of Christ was so difficult for the disciples to assimilate, and many of them left. It was about the Eucharist. It was about Christ's body and blood being flesh to eat and blood to drink for the life of all. Peter said, John, Jesus turned to the disciples and, and said, um, um, well, are you going to go too? You know, is this too tough for you to handle? And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe. So Peter spoke for the apostles and spoke for their belief. In Luke 5, we have a foreshadowing of the church and Peter's role in the church. The crowds were pressing in on Jesus to speak on the shore of Lake Gennesaret. And Jesus decided to get in a boat. Now, there were a number of boats there. There were at least two. Usually there was a number of boats. And Christ got into Peter's boat. He sat down and then taught the crowds from the boat of which Peter was captain. When he was finished, Jesus ordered Peter to go out and do some fishing. Peter was skeptical. He'd been out all night. He'd found nothing. And then he filled his nets to the breaking point and said to Jesus, Leave me, for I am a single man. And Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be fisher of men. Now, he said this to Peter. You'll be fisher of men. Peter's preeminent position among the apostles was declared by Christ from the very beginning of Christ's ministry and the relationship. In John chapter 1, in verses 40 and following, it says, Andrew brought his brother Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. Your name shall be called Cephas, or Rock, which is rendered Peter. In the Old Testament, only God was called Rock. The image rock had great significance in Christ's preaching. For example, the foolish man builds his house on sand. The wise man builds his house on the rock. The rock referred to Jesus. Jesus was God. So the significance of the name was, was quite something. It was very, very strong. Also given a new name was an ancient tradition in the Old Testament. Abram was named Abraham by God, Jacob to Israel. And always when someone was given a new name in the Old Testament, a new status was conferred on them. It was their call. When someone was given a new name, 
that God was also calling them to him in a special way, setting them aside, giving them a special significance. Simon's new name completely supplanted the old. And it meant that he had a totally new role to fill in history. He was being set aside as Peter, as the rock. This meant he had a new role in history. In Matthew 16, another account of, of Christ declaring Simon the rock, it says, I, for my part, declare to you, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And the jaws of death, or some translations, hell, will not prevail against it. Jesus founded his church upon Peter. Peter was not the head of the church. Christ was the head of the church. But the visible representation of that head on whom he would found his church was Peter. Now, at the same time, a few verses down, he gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to Peter. In ancient time, keys meant authority. It was very clear. And today, not so much today, but maybe a few years ago, when someone came to a city, an important dignitary, they were given a key as a symbol to saying, we open up the city to you. Since heaven is most profoundly the eternal and complete presence of God, the keys must have signified the power of opening persons to divine life or the power of salvation itself. To be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven is one thing. To be given the keys to, to uh, open up a house is something else. We're talking about something that is, is, is huge here, is very significant. If Christ meant something else by singling out Peter, it's not evident at all in Scripture. If he meant something other than a literal handing over and empowering, it's not clear. No other translation suffices in interpreting these scriptures. Now, the authority to dispense the transmission of supernatural life, that is grace, which Peter was given, was complemented by an authoritative gift. Christ gave him the gift of authority, most explicitly in scriptures to forgive sins, but also to govern the entire church. Matthew 16, 19. Whatever you shall loose on heaven, on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Peter was singled out for this future authority to be a minister of Christ's authority on earth. Now, some say, well, Peter denied Christ three times, and therefore he couldn't be a spiritual leader. Well, in John 21, he, aff he affirmed Christ three times. I'll talk about that in a second. And Christ forgave him. It doesn't mean he couldn't be a spiritual leader. It meant he was human. It meant he was a sinner. Of course, Peter was a sinner. That doesn't mean that Christ couldn't build his church upon him if Christ was giving him the power to fulfill that office. In John 15:21, after the resurrection on the Sea of Tiberias, the disciples recognized Christ and they all rushed to him. Jesus took Peter aside and said, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I do. And he did this three times. And he said, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend to my sheep. Now, these are the three affirmations that canceled off the three denials of Christ. But more importantly, Jesus here was saying to the church that he was making Peter the shepherd of his own flock. Who feeds the sheep? The shepherd. The shepherd feeds the sheep. Peter knew well, and so did the early Christians, that one of the central themes of Jesus' preaching was that he was the shepherd of the church. For example, in John 10:14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know mine, and mine know my voice. Christ's headship, or authority over the church, was expressed in the New Testament, not only as shepherd, but as rock and key bearer and teacher. In John 21, 
Christ confers shepherd on Peter. Peter, you're the shepherd of the church. In Matthew 16, he confers titles upon, on Peter, rock and key bearer. In Luke 22, the teacher to strengthen others in faith. Now, all these titles that were before Christ are conferred to Peter. Now, what did Peter do with these titles? What did he do with this authority? He immediately exercised his authority. In Acts 1, verses 15 to 22, Peter is the one who led the appointment of Judah's successor. In Acts 2, 14 to 40, on the day of Pentecost, he was the first preacher of the church, the first one to proclaim the gospel. And he gives many major speeches in Acts. In Acts 5, he judges Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 15, he is the clear authority at the Council of Jerusalem. And Paul clearly deferred to that council to Peter. Now, Paul corrected Peter in other places, but he deferred to his authority, and it's clear that he did that. Peter is the one who decided that the church should shift its missions to the Gentiles from the Jews, and the first to command the baptism of the Gentiles. Now, that's pretty significant, and that's not all the information in the Scriptures. I had to go over it fairly quickly. But let's talk about, let's talk about infallibility and primacy. What is papal infallibility and what is papal primacy? These are two different things. Both gifts given to God, given to uh, the church. Primacy or supremacy <clears throat> basically means that the Pope has a right to obedience in all matters of faith and morals. The Pope is not the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. But the Pope represents him. He's the vicar of Christ. Because Christ decided to have a visible representative on earth. That's Christ's decision. Christ wanted there to be a visible representation of him on earth for the sake of unity, for the sake of continuity and authority. God works invisibly in his church. The Pope and the bishops work visibly. Christ came on earth and became man. He was God-man. As part of his salvation, he came to teach. As part of his salvation, he came to govern. While he was here, he was the supreme teacher of the church and the supreme head and governor of the church. Christ could not teach error, and he clearly and consistently declared his authority. He told the church that he was the Son of God. He forgave sins. He declared his authority, and he didn't allow for any disagreement with his authority. That's why he died because he told people who he was, that he, had the, that he was God and exercised God's own authority. Now, in these capacities, he showed that there was a need for a visible teacher and a visible authority. Christ was a visible teacher. He walked the earth. He was a visible authority. He walked the earth. How do you think the, the, the church first got united? It was united around Christ. Christ was visibly there for them to touch and see and hear. Now, if a spiritual teacher was needed then, and if a visible center of his authority and teaching was needed then, how much more do we need it now? We need it much more, even more now and afterwards. Peter was unquestionably the successor to Christ's human office on earth. Just from reason, every human society requires an authority. Otherwise, there's chaos. Otherwise, the, authority, the uh, uh, society would begin to fall apart. Supremacy guarantees unity. Supremacy or primacy 
guarantees the unity of the church. And we talked about that last time, that the church has shown itself to be one for 2,000 years. Infallibility guarantees truth, guarantees that Christ's truth predominates and is clear and is taught, that the true teaching of Christ will be here for us as it was when he walked the earth. Now, what is infallibility? We've talked about primacy. What is infallibility? We'll talk about that when we come back after this break. I'm Chris Noble, and we're talking today about Peter and the papacy and the infallibility and primacy of the Pope. We're talking about infallibility right now. I want to start out with this segment on the gift of infallibility. The gift of infallibility comes from God. It's something God gives to his entire church. It's not for the Pope alone. It's a gift the whole church has. It's all of ours. He exercises it, but it's also given to us, and I really feel that as a Catholic. Now, infallibility does not mean that the Pope is sinless, that, it, that he is not a sinner. He is a sinner in need of Christ's salvation. It doesn't mean he's perfect in all his actions, that he doesn't make any mistakes. For he has to go and study the, the teachings of the Church like anybody else. Now, it's not true that because he's a sinner and not perfect, he can't be a true guide. There are Christian leaders, all who are imperfect and all who are sinners, who guide their churches. The teaching of Christ and the Apostles needs to be kept whole and undefiled. And people of all ages, we all need the faith to be pure, to be kept pure for us. The Church founded by Christ must have the power, the gift, the ability to be able to keep, keep Christ's revelation pure for us, true, so we can know the truth. Because because we have to know the truth to be saved. It has to be there for us. That's part of God's salvation. And he preserves that truth for us through the gift of infallibility. If this infallibility had died out, say, in the early church, it was, it, was a, it was not a true teaching from Christ, the church would have gone into darkness, gone into an eclipse years and years ago. It just wouldn't exist. God himself preserves and guarantees that his teaching will remain with us. It only makes sense. God's not going to come on earth and teach us in Christ and then, help, then leave us to guess what he said later and argue about it. Now, when a controversy does arise in the church that they're about the teaching of Christ, there's a process the church follows. First of all, scriptures are examined. Then the view universally held by the church is examined. Now, this examines uh, theologians or what some are called fathers of the church or doctors of the church, those who have helped to define the teaching of the church. Many of them are saints. The uh, teaching of the church, the tradition, the magisterium, the official teaching of the church is examined. Now, if the church still can't come to a clear conclusion about this teaching of Christ that's in doubt, then the Pope gives ex cathedra, or from his chair, the final definition 
of that which Christ and the church have, by implication, taught all along. So, so there's, a, there's a process, a very careful and prayerful process, whereby the church goes to the original teachings of Christ and shows whether or not a particular teaching is in conformity with Christ's teaching. Now, the Pope is the final arbiter, then, of the gift of infallibility in the church. Infallibility does not give divine power to the Pope, and that power remains in God's hand. The Pope doesn't have divine power. That power is in God's hands. He's the minister of that power. God, in using men to write the Bible, inspired them. Now, that's, if you study that theologically, that's a much greater gift than infallibility. It's a much more powerful, strong gift. I mean, in, inspiration of the scriptures is seen as a far more greater work of God or a greater work than God of infallibility. Infallibility, in a sense, is the continuation of that guarantee of Christ's teaching. Now, Vatican I saw the Pope as vicar of Christ when exercising his teaching office in a definitive and binding manner toward the whole church on matters of faith and morals, and he is protected by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit guarantees that infallibility will be there. It's a divine guarantee, and we recognize it and exercise it. And, of course, the Pope exercises it primarily. Cardinal Newman said, We have no reason to suppose that there is so great a distinction of dispensation between ourselves and the first generations of Christians to believe that they had a living, infallible guidance, that is Christ, and we have not. You know, in other words, the early church wasn't so much greater than us that it has a living, living, visible guide, and we don't. The last thing I'd like to uh, address is the argument from history. How do we know that the papacy is from Christ? And, and also, I want to talk about the question, why Rome? Why Rome? Why was Peter in Rome, and why is it the home of all the popes? Well, first of all, Rome was the only great city in the ancient Near Eastern world. And it was the capital and center of the Roman Empire, and it was natural to look for Rome for leadership on a, on a human level, especially in a church that was expanding quite rapidly all over the place. Also, the early Christian writings stress that the church in Rome was carrying on the tradition of its two greatest martyrs, Peter and Paul. There's a very ancient, strong Christian tradition that Peter and Paul gave their final teachings in Rome and were martyred there. Therefore, the Bishop of Rome came to be recognized as the legitimate successor to Peter as Pope. Now, just as in Jerusalem Christ died, and the church, the early church the, centered in Jerusalem, the Christian church, but after it was scattered, then Peter and Paul went to Rome, they died in Rome, and there where they died, the church had its center, the church had its central authority in the same way. Now, was Peter actually in Rome? In 1 Peter 5.13, he says, The church greets you from Babylon. Now, Babylon was a code word for Rome. It is used that way six times in the book of Revelation. It meant, it meant Rome. Babylon was attributed to Rome. This couldn't have referred to ancient Babylon as a city. That was a very insignificant city during those times, and it was not a great city anymore. Rome was the great city, and it was regarded by the Christians as Babylon, as a very sinful city. There is no longer any serious scholarly questioning that Peter was in Rome. That question really has been laid to rest, but I'm addressing it because many people argue this today. Peter died there in 64 AD, and no ancient writer claimed that Peter died anywhere else. There's no ancient writings that said that Peter died somewhere else. 
the Diocese of Rome then became the Diocese of the entire world and the, the see or the central authority for the entire flock of Christ. The Roman see is identified in the writings of Irenaeus, Tertullian, Eusebius, and many, many others, that many historians and writers recognize Rome as the see of Christ, as the central place in the church. Now, when some historians hold that the papacy was formed in the 4th and 5th centuries, they superficially refer only to its external estate or the external writings. They say it's not in the scriptures. There's no, nothing in the scriptures that says that uh, there was any papacy. Well, I just shared about the uh, scriptures on Peter as the foundation for the papacy. I think was, that's a pretty strong argument for the foundation, the scriptural ar um, argument for the foundation of the papacy in Peter. But it, it's not until the 4th or 5th century that we begin to get some clear writings, th some theological development of the theology of the papacy. Now, why is that? That was because the, not until then had anyone challenged the notion. The argument from silence argues for the fact that the popes were accepted by the church. And the, so in this time there was a challenge, and the challenge came from the Byzantine emperor and from the Eastern patriarchs. So the church began to write in answer to that, began to write what was already believed by the people, and they put it in theological language so that we could understand what the papacy was all about. It's no contradiction to what was in the scripture whatsoever. As more and more evidence from the early years of the church is uncovered, the reality of papal primacy being exercised in Rome from the beginning is becoming greater. So, so the more study that is made about Rome and papal primacy, the more it is clear that it existed in the church, was accepted in the church, that it was exercised in Rome. The evidence is gaining all the time. The popes were in continuous... Um, the popes were continuous, there was no break, and their authority was taken for granted. Their authority was taken for granted. There were some breaks in the papacy in the line due to historical circumstances. But the office itself was always there. The office always came back. Now, we know from Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Eusebius, and others, that, and many of the early church fathers, that Peter was succeeded by Linus, Linus was succeeded by Anacletus, and Anacletus was succeeded by Clement. Now, Clement, in 96 AD, wrote a surviving monument to the pontificate. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians. And this is while St. John was still alive. It was a very strong letter to restore order among the Corinthians. He wrote in an authoritative manner, very clearly giving authority, to resolve division and leadership and to deal with sin and rebellion. The authority of the letter was very reminiscent of Paul's letter to the Corinthians in Scripture. Again, in 150 A.D., the martyr bishop Polycarp of Smyrna journeyed to Rome to ask Pope Victor to solicit from him the date of Easter. He went to Rome and is a clear recognition of the Pope's authority. St. Cyprian in 250 A.D., who often quarreled with the popes, he, he told them exactly what he thought and quarreled with them on important matters, matters of the faith, such as the authority of sinners and baptism of heretics and things like that, nevertheless said, in speaking about Rome, he said, the See of Peter is the principal church where the unity of the priesthood took its rise, whose faith has been commended by the apostles, to whom faithfulness, faithlessness can have no access. So he, he wrote the praises of the papacy. Now, perhaps the crowning glory 
in the continuous recognition of papal primacy came from the Eastern Church at the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Now here at this council, the person and nature of Christ was decided. And it was defined in such a way as to clear up hundreds of years of Christological heresy and confusion and misunderstanding. And it clarified the teaching about Christ, the person about Christ. It set heresy to rest. Now, the formula, the theology that this council adopted came primarily from a massive letter of Pope Leo the Great written in 449, two years before the council. The council recognized papal primacy. And throughout the council at its end, end, they developed a slogan, a popular slogan that said, Peter speaks through Leo. Now, these examples can be multiplied many, many times. Um, but I just want to end by saying that um, uh, for me personally, in my own belief and, and in my own life, the papacy, the doctrine of the papacy doesn't confine me. It doesn't restrict me. It liberates me. It doesn't enslave me. It frees me from error. It frees me from the possibility of committing more sin. It helps me to attain to spiritual maturity. The papacy is absolutely essential to the Christian church. For under papal guidance, the Christian man or woman progressively attains to his or, own, to his or her own true end and perfection of holiness and liberated life in God. It's a gift to the whole church, and it helps us to come into the fullness of Christ's kingdom. Thank you very much, and God bless you. Thank mm-hmm. you.